This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. If you're thinking... I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store. Like now, go. Being a birder has nothing to do with how many birds you've seen, how many birds you can identify. You know, for me, it's about being able to connect with nature. And whether you know what the names are or not, it doesn't matter. So long as you can pick a pair of binoculars up or even just look at a bird, as far as I'm concerned, you're a birder. There's no club to join, there's no level to reach, there's no exam to take. You know, and that's the issue, you see, that's the other thing. People feel that they need to be an expert. That's not the case at all. You just need to have your eyes open and your mind open, more importantly. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Science Focus. Many of us have found solace in nature over the last few months, relishing our time outdoors, especially when it was limited to one form of exercise a day. A recent report by the RSPB found that people see access to nature as being important for their health and well-being during and in recovery from the coronavirus crisis. One man who has been connected to the natural world is David Lindo. Known by most as the urban birder, David is a champion for the well-being benefits of wildlife, encouraging us all to get outside and see what we can find be it in the garden, the city, or the countryside. In this week's interview, David tells editorial assistant Amy Barrett about the human benefits of biodiversity, the need for conservation, education, and diversity within the birding community. And please let us know what you think of the episode with a review or a comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, my name is David Lindo. I'm also known as the Urban Birder. And my whole thing is about uh, trying to get people living in urban areas to connect to their environment, to nature, but through the medium of birds. And how did you get into bird watching? How did I get into birding? That's an interesting question. I 
I've always been interested in nature uh, before I was born. In fact, I often say that in a previous life I was a puma. And I used to uh, chase after birds and one day I missed one and it flew off and I thought, wow, that looks amazing. So I became a birding puma, which led to my, which led to my demise because I um, obviously had to feed. So I starved to death and I think that just prior to dying, I thought, this is a very interesting thing I got into here. I wonder if I can explore this in another life. And luckily, I was born in northwest London as a human. And so is it something that you did as a, as a child then? Yeah, but I was, I was, I've been interested all my life, as I say. Started off with insects. I realised that insects were fed upon by birds. So I was about five when that happened. I taught myself because I didn't have a, a mentor. I didn't have anyone around me who had any interest. Uh, no one had an interest. It came from nowhere, hence the Puma story. Um, so I taught myself, and by the age of eight, I was a veritable walking encyclopedia on the birds of Britain, Europe, Middle East, and North Africa, and a, a good spattering of the world as well. Um, I didn't meet a, a birder, another birder, until I was 11. And by that point, I was way down the track. <laughs> And you've turned what is a hobby for most in, into a full career. Yeah, I got lucky. About 14 years ago, I, uh, I received an email out of the blue from the BBC asking if I want to appear on Springwatch, talking about my local patch in West London called Wormwood Scrubs. And by that, I'm talking about the, uh, the park and not the prison. And um, I agreed to that. And I think it kind of kicked off from there. Really. It came very unexpectedly and I suddenly realised that there was something I could be doing so it kind of went from there. Mm. And is it a case that most birders aren't based in you know cities it's that it seems like a, a countryside type of thing to do and is, is that what, why you probably didn't meet anyone until you were about 11? I think that's a fair enough assumption, certainly initially, but a lot of birders actually do live in cities because 82% of us nearly all, all live in urban areas in Britain. Um, I think that the urban birding thing has become a lot more popular in the last 20 years. Um, when I started doing it, um, it was a case of people telling you you can only see birds in the, uh, in the countryside. But urban birding has been in existence as long as, you know, humans have thatched roofs and planted parking meters into the ground. You know, people have watched birds all the time. May not necessarily have been called urban birding at the time, but um, it was something that people did. But it was always seen as the poor relative. You needed to go out into the middle of nowhere to really go birding. Um, that's not the case at all. Um, and I, I knew that as a kid, and I've been talking about it ever since, really. Mm. Do you think it has um, aspects of uh, whether it's the community or the way that it's talked about that make it inaccessible to some? Well, birding. Um, I think that, I mean, that, that is an interesting question in that I, I think that it's, well, there's several things that exclude people from, from being involved. Um, one is that people think they need to be an expert to, to do it. Two, and especially back in the day, people thought you had to be some kind of person to do it, i.e., you know, with a beard and a belly and a bit of a social misfit um, and, you know, sit, sitting in your bedroom in your mum's house at the age of 60, you know, that kind of thing. So it had a very kind of fuddy-duddy-ish 
um, train spotting type of um, image, I suppose, back in certainly back in the 60s, 70s. But I think nowadays it's become much more fashionable. Um, I think people realise that there is a lot of stuff to be seen around around them in urban areas. Um, I think the major drawbacks now, the major barriers now, I mean, people often quote the idea, especially when it comes to uh, ethnically diverse people, that it's racism that stops them from being involved. I don't subscribe to that at all, um, or at least I don't think that's a main issue, um, because I think there's other bigger issues than that. And I base that on my experience. I've been doing this all my life. And I think some of the people that have been sort of purporting that particular opinion haven't really spent much time in the field anyway, because I've been in the field since I was a kid, you know, and I've, I've, I've lived through, you know, the 70s and 80s when it was really very racist in the UK. You know, I was, as a kid, from the age of, you know, primary school, age five, until nearly leaving secondary school, so maybe 14, was subjected to racial abuse on an almost daily basis. Um, and it got to the point, especially, I mean, I got used to it fairly early on, but it got to the point that it became water, water for ducks back for me because I just thought to myself, why can't you think of something a bit more original to call me as opposed to a, a blanket name? But I never received any of that kind of treatment when I was out birding. I never received that from people in, involved in nature or conservation. They always, I always felt as if it was my sanctuary. I always felt that, you know, I was, I was treated as an equal um, so I think one of the main blocks to people being involved in birding is education. I think that, you know, kids are not taught much about natural history and the environment and conservation, as, you know, in, in primary school upwards. So they grow up in this bubble thinking that, you know, nature is all about being on David Attenborough programmes or in the middle of the countryside away from prying eyes. Um, so they become, you know, disconnected. And I also think um, there's cultural issues as well, especially when it comes to some ethnically, ethnically diverse people. You know, they have cultural things where they just don't think it's right for, for example, young girls, young Asian girls to be spending the night out in the countryside, you know, whatever. So that's another issue. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think a big issue is the way that the media portrays nature. Um, I think even to this day, it's still portrayed as the uh, as the occupation, the pastime of uh, white middle class, middle aged men, predominantly. Um, and I also feel that you know I don't feel I can see when I turn on the TV that half the time it's being presented by a white middle class, middle aged male. And um, I think people, regardless of their colour, creed, religion, what have you are put off by that because I look at that and think, that's not me. Um, so I think that the media have a lot more to be doing to try and to kind of make things a bit more representative. That said, and there's been lots of criticisms levelled at uh, some of the conservation NGOs, for example, for not hiring enough people of colour um, and for being institutionally racist. Um, I think that in their defence even though I, I do think that some of that does happen. But in their defence, I think that you can't fish from a pool with no fish. And it brings you back to the beginning, which is getting people educated. 
getting people to think that they could want to be involved in a career in conservation or want to, or think that conservation's a, a worthwhile thing to get involved in or birding or what have you. And I think that, you know, I look at some of the, the press that um, supports or, you know, kind of is for the ethnic minorities, i.e., for example, I look at my own group, the, you know, the West Indian and Afro-African community, and they've got news, a couple of newspapers that serve them. And when I look at those newspapers, all I see is this stereotypical racism being, being, being sort of uh, pushed. So, in other words, it's like they say, you know, that black kids should be into sports, football, basketball. They should be singing R&B and hip-hop. You know, it's, it's just the classic stereotypes. And there's no reference to you doing anything you want to do, like being an astronaut or anything else like that. So I think, you know, I think it's a very multifaceted problem. And it's, it's more than just pointing fingers and saying, you're racist, you're racist, and what have you. It's more than that. Because I think there's lots of elements that have to be addressed. And that's why there is such a shortage or such a, uh, a, a small number of non-white people being involved in this. They feel that it's very English or British, and maybe they don't, they don't feel British. I mean, for, for a long stage of my life, I didn't feel British. I didn't feel English at all. Only in the last, I'd say, 25 years. And that's because of the constant racism. You know, go back to where you come from and all that sort of stuff, which I've had all my life until, you know, well, until 25 years ago, or maybe before then. So it kind of, for me, and the other thing that's interesting I find is that, you know, it's also down to your personality because when it comes to exclusion or the potential of exclusion, you've got to be clear that it is actually is what you think it is. Because racism nowadays is very hard to prove sometimes. Um, sometimes people may be off with you, but they may be off with everyone. But then you may take it as, as, a, as a racial thing. You know, I might walk into a room and someone else of colour would walk into the room and we'll have two different experiences. Because, for example, you know, I've been reading about people who uh, have been going birding, uh, non-white people who felt very conscious, who felt as if they are victims of macro microaggression, as they put it. And I think to myself, you know, if you walk into a hide and you're black or you're not white and you're in the middle of the countryside, you may get people turning around looking at you. But that's because I, I feel because you're different. You know, you're not like what who's in the hide at the moment. And then once you say, All right, guys, how's, how's it going? What, what have you seen recently? Five minutes later, you know, everyone's equal. But some people are not that bold. Some people feel very conscious of themselves. And they don't say anything, and then they kind of feel this pressure. So, you know, I, I often think about that as well. I mean, obviously, you know, obviously people have to be made welcome, of course. But not every time you have such a sort of situation is it racism. I mean, for example, I'm in Spain right now. I've been in Spain since the beginning of lockdown. And, I mean, I've been in this region you know, I've been here quite a bit over the last 10 years, so I know the region quite well. Um, the region is called Extremadura, and it's um, a very rural region. So when you're driving around, you're going through villages and stuff, 
people stop and look as if they've never seen a car before, even though there's cars in the villages. And that's not because of the fact that you're, you know, you're a different colour, what have you. It's because they don't recognise your car. They don't recognise you. And, you know, I have had a couple of racial incidents here, I must say, but most of the time it's been um, curiosity, stroke, even verging into ignorance in terms of not knowing how to deal with someone who looks different to you. So an example would be I was birding in um, a rice field area in, in Spain and I went to a cafe to have a cup of tea and there was a guy, an old boy, standing by the bar and he basically was looking at me. So my my default situation when someone looks at me is the, hello, how are you doing? I just say hello to them. And nine times out of ten, they kind of, they're shocked and then they say hello back and then it's fine. So he said hello back and we were speaking in pidgin Spanish. Um, he asked me where I came from. I said I was from London. And obviously he hadn't met many people from London and he certainly hadn't met an English guy who was black before. But anyway, it was fine. And then his mate walked into the bar and not realising if I can understand what he said, he said, who's that? To the uh, his, the first guy. And the first guy said, oh, this is um, a, a guy from London. The second guy goes, what? A black, per- a black English person like that? To which I responded in Spanish, yeah, and you're a white Spanish person, what of it? And he became very embarrassed and he left. That's ignorance, you know? So it's really, this whole subject's really interesting because I think you really need to look at it and not so, you need to actually look at it very carefully and and actually analyse it in a very broad sense, not just a case of black and white. Because I've noticed that some uh, NGOs have become so sensitive to the whole subject that the moment someone's mentioned the words racist or race, they panic and think they're doing something wrong and they try and appease the person saying whatever they're saying. But they need to think about it a bit more, really. So, yeah, my opinion is opinion is quite different to a lot of other people in this sector. And as a result, I've been, I remember being asked by a, a, a national newspaper to, uh, to give an interview about my thoughts, especially during the Black Lives Matter stuff that happened, the tragic um, situation. And because I said what I've just told you, their response is, yeah, but we need a, an angle. And I said, well, what do you mean? That is my angle. And they wanted me to say, you know, no, you're a racist. You don't want me to point fingers, basically. So they're the problems, I think, that affect people getting involved. I know it's a, a long-winded answer, but that's, that's, that's basically how I see it. And all these discussions about what is a microaggression, what is racism, what is ignorance, actually all detract from the main thing, which is just making it accessible to everyone. You know, the discussion should be, like you say, on how we can get it into education and how we can get a a wider message out and better representation. Whereas if we're all kind of worrying over whether some particular person or, or company is racist, it kind of detracts from what their end goal is, don't you think? Well, totally. And I think a lot of people have become very kind of worried and I've been approached by organisations, individuals. Oh, my God, what am I doing wrong? You know, what can I be saying? Who should I be talking to? You know, and I'm just saying what you should be doing is just being a good person. 
simple as that. Um, as a kid, I realised that I was an ambassador. I was an ambassador for birders, I was an ambassador for black people, and I'm an ambassador for humanity. And they're the three things that I worry about, you know, and I think that's, that's all you need to think about. People overcomplicate things. Um, and I, it really annoys me. I mean, I remember um, recently watching a, a documentary about the, the soul music scene. I'm into, I, I was well into soul music back in my day. I still am, but, you know, I was a bit of a disco boy. And um, I, I, um, it was done by, the actual programme was actually produced by some black people who are music into music now. But they described the scene back then as being predominantly white. They talked about, you know, mostly white socks, Essex boys. And I thought, hang on a minute, were you there? Because when I was there, I saw a whole mix of different people. And also, we didn't even talk about race. Race didn't even come into it. It was just like, we're all together, we're having a good time. Why do people have to then put their stuff onto it or make it uh, an issue where it's black and white when it wasn't uh, at all in the first place? So I think that's the situation at the moment. I think people are very, very quick to, to kind of, I don't know, to politicise, to, you know, to, to, to make it more than what it is sometimes. And on the subject of, of identifying of a, as a birder, I mean, I, I know, especially since, you know, lockdown and having so much more um, time outdoors where there's less distraction of cars and other people. I've found myself, you know, reading books about bird watching or trying to kind of pay a bit more attention, but I'm still reluctant to call myself a bird. Why? I don't know. It feels like a... I, I, I mean, I can't name the birds when I see them. Should so? I be able to name them all? No. <laughs> Being a bird has nothing to do with how many birds you've seen, how many birds you can identify... You know, for me, it's about being able to connect with nature. And whether you know what the names are or not, it doesn't matter. So long as you can pick a pair of binoculars up or even just look at a bird, as far as I'm concerned, you're a birder. There's no club to join. There's no level to reach. There's no exam to take. You know, and that's the issue, you see. That's the other thing. People feel that they need to be an expert. That's not the case at all. You just need to have your eyes open and your mind open, more importantly. And what's different about urban birding compared to being out in the countryside? Not much difference. I think urban birding, if anything, I mean, my life as an urban bird has made me much more aware because in urban areas, I guess you have to look a bit harder. But some of the birds that do show up are much more used to people, so you see them much better. And plus the habitats within urban areas are much sparser, which means that, again, you see, you're more likely to see them because they've got less habitat to hide in. Um, and going back to the first point in terms of being more used to people, I mean, the classic example is a wood pigeon. Um, in London, for example, you can walk right up to, in fact, they can walk right up to you uh, in, in Trafalgar Square and stuff like that. You go in the middle of the countryside, you can't get within half a mile of one. Uh, because there's a whole different way of life for them there. They get hunted there, for example, whereas in urban areas, they're, you know, they're fed by us. So that's a big issue. That's a big difference. And also, when you think about urban birding, people often sort of think that there's only pigeons and sparrows, even though sparrows have become quite scarce these days. But in reality, 
Um, there's been roughly about 620 different species of birds seen in the, in the UK since records began. And these include birds that have been found once uh, versus birds that, like blackbirds that as nine or 10 million pairs. And of the, of the 620, about 95% have been found in urban areas. And then when you think about London, for example, the bird list, the species list there is about 350, 360. So, you know, it shows that you can actually find anything anywhere. And that's why I find such a challenge about urban birding because, because it was derided in the beginning as being the poor cousin and even to this day, I mean, I've um, I got well, my like my last book, which is How to Be an Urban Bird. I remember doing a book tour, and my publisher approached a couple of sort of bird organisations or bird clubs, and one or two of them said, "Well, we don't want to have him here because we don't think it's serious bird watching." You know, so you've got people who are kind of quite elitist about it. But I think in the main, most people understand that. You know, it has, it's just as important as any other thing. But for me, it's not even about that. For me, it's about people. For me, it's about trying to get people to understand that we have an environment that's right outside our front doors. The moment you step out your door, you look up, you, it's, it's around us straight away. And urban birding is a great conduit to get people to realise that conservation starts from your doorstep. So that's why I'm very keen and interested in talking to people who have no prior knowledge, people like you, Amy, because at the end of the day, I see myself as a, as a bridge. You know, you see that door, that's marked environment, you walk through it, you get interested in birds, you can cross that bridge and then get involved in conservation, get involved in local stuff, or not at all. But you can be um, exposed to it. And that's the main thing. And that's all I'm interested in. And that's what I see as urban birding. It's not about, you know, as I said before, getting as many species as possible or whatever. It's not about that at all. It's about being aware. It's about us connecting. And more importantly, it's about love. I guess I have this image in my head of of being a birder and, and being quite solitary, almost almost lonely out in the environment. Yeah, it could be, you could, it's, a, it's a very social thing. You can do it in groups, you know, you can do it on your own. I mean, I think it's a, for me, it's a very grounding experience. Um, and I know we're going to talk about this, but it's also very good for your well-being and mental health. It's very, very grounding. It, you know, birds don't argue with you. Birds make your heart flutter, no matter where you are. Um, and even if you just do it for half an hour in the morning before going to work or school or going having a, a sandwich on a bench in a park and just trying to blot out the sounds of humanity, the human hubbub, and then let the nature, the natural sounds filter through. And eventually you start tuning into birds singing that people can't hear because it's because all they can they're still stuck they're stuck in their bubble still. Once you crack your bubble open and you realize that there's a world out there, you get so much joy from that. And I think, you know, it's like you you may have issues or problems. I mean, I've had times in the past where, for example, you've broken up with a girlfriend and you feel a bit kind of down and you go birding and it just lifts your heart and then you leave and go back to your life. But you feel as if there's some kind of solution. You've, you've got some clarity. There's some kind of, you know, end product from this. 
And um, that's why I, that's why I think it's so great to be connected to nature because it's something that we're, most of us, well, actually more of us are being connected to, but most of us are not. And we need to because it's so good for us. You've mentioned um, having binoculars. Is is it is there a lot of equipment that one needs to have to get started? Or what are the basics that you would recommend for you to step outside the door right now? An open mind, open eyes and ears. Then I'd say binoculars and a, and a, and a book. But I think they are secondary. I spent... Years not knowing anything about birds. I spent but years calling sparrows baby birds and starlings mummy birds and blackbirds daddy birds. But it didn't matter because I had a relationship with them. Does a name make you love them more than, you know, than anything else? No. A name helps you to categorise. Yeah, of course. But that can come afterwards. And I think plus once you fall in love with the whole idea and realise this is really lovely then you want to learn more. You want to learn about it, about your own pace. And it's so important that you do it at your pace and don't, don't feel pressurised thinking that I need to do this and I can't, I can't call myself a birder because I, I don't know whatever. It doesn't matter. It's a really individual thing. When I started the whole urban birding sort of brand, as it were, I thought to myself, I wanted to sell it to the media and change people's thinking on the whole subject. And I thought I'd sell it as a lifestyle choice up there with meditation and yoga. And it worked. I mean, the media loved it. And I mean, I remember once um, someone wrote a piece and the headline was Urban Birding, Ornithology's New Rock and Roll. Anyone can be involved, you know. And I, I say it again, you don't need to be an expert. You don't need... I mean, I, as I kind of read this book as a kid birds of Britain, Europe, Middle East, and North Africa. I, I was a bit weird because I was really totally, you know, I was obsessed and I wanted to know everything. So, yeah, I knew all the birds in this book by the time I was eight. But I'm, I, I was different. I think most people, you know, even if it's just a casual thing, it's fine. You know, I think it's more important to connect to nature. It's more important to plug in and, and, and really help your spirit. It's so important. Because, mm. you know, like you say, in terms of well-being, we, the Science Focus Book Club uh, read um, Bird Therapy by Joe Harkness in July. Um, and Joe talks about the mental health benefits. He, he calls listening to birdsong almost like a kind of meditation, like you've said. Um, do you know if there is any, any research that's gone into the actual impacts of birding on mental health? There's been a lot of research. I mean, I can't. I don't. I can't quote any back to you now because I can't think of them right now. But there's been plenty of research. But the thing is, research is great because it proves that you know there is that issue. But for people like me, I've always known that. You know, it's always it's always been known. Always. I mean, there was a time when I was depressed. I remember going to the doctor, not feeling great. I was feeling really down. The doctor said to me, "You've got mild mild depression. Uh, here's some pills." And I said, "I'm not taking any pills." So he said to me, "In that case, go out." And do whatever you love, do it more. So I went home, got my binoculars, and birding pulled me through. So it, it does have calming effects. There's lots of research out there about it in terms of how seeing green and blue is good for our, our well-being and the fact that, you know, you're kind of being quiet and at one with yourself and actually seeing things that make you feel happy 
I mean, for me, it's obvious. But, you know, you just have to think about how you feel when you see a puppy or a kitten. You know, it's the same kind of thing. You know, it's just very important to, to, to keep hold of those things and to realise that we are all part of nature. You know, we're not separate. Without nature, we don't exist, simple as that. And we need to learn that pretty quick. And nature obviously has such an impact on us, but are we having an impact on... Are birds evolving in our urban environments? Are they changing because of it? Yeah, some birds are. Um, There's a couple of species, like, for example, the great tit. Um, um, They did some research in Aberystwyth University in Wales, and um, they found that the urban great tit um, are singing louder to combat traffic, but also are not being recognised by their rural counterparts. The song's not being recognised. So it's quite interesting where they are sort of developing. And there's other species as well that are kind of developing louder songs to combat the actual urban hubbub. But it's gone a stage further. There's a, there's a species of bird in North America called the, um, the dark-eyed junco. I think that's the official name, or it could be slate-coloured junco. Slate-coloured junco, actually, is called. It's like a sparrow. And in the east, it's very grey-looking with a white belly, but the further west you go, it becomes browner on its back. Um, but there's a population, the most westerly population, which lives in the mountains above San Diego in California. And historically, during the winter, they will travel down the mountain and be on the coastal plain wintering, which includes uh, San Diego as well. And, um, and then head back up in the mountains in spring. And one day in the 80s, on the campus of San Diego University, uh, a daughter of one of the lecturers discovered that there were juncos still there during the summer. So she told her father, who was a birder, and at first he didn't believe her, but then when he checked, he realised that they were there. So they started to study them. And I realised that they began over the years to fundamentally change the birds in the campus, um, their song was louder. Um, the colours changed in that in the mountains, the male has a really black head and has really strong white outer tail feathers, which are used in aggression and territorial disputes. Whereas in the campus, the head became more diffused, as did the white outer tail feathers. So they weren't becoming, they weren't as aggressive as they were in the mountains. In the mountains, they bred once a year, once every summer, and the male took no part in raising the young. Whereas in the campus, they bred up to four times a year, and the male was the greatest father on two legs. Um, so what, and also, they, the, the, the birds in the campus were much more approachable than the ones in the mountains, who were very aloof. So what they did was they captured a certain amount from the mountain and from the campus, put them in an aviary together, subjected them to the same conditions, same light conditions, same food, and the mountain birds and the campus birds kept separate, which is effectively evolution in process, which, if you extrapolate that, could mean that when our cities become, you know, because more and more cities are getting bigger and bigger, that we're going to have many more mega cities, there may become populations of animals that evolve in that one city and become a separate species, which has already happened in London with a species of mosquito found in the underground. 
So that could be the future. So to answer your question, yes, birds do adapt. But they're classically the birds that spend most of their lives, if not all, in urban areas. There's a lot of other birds that are transient visit- visitors, migrants that come through on the way to and from Africa, for example, or birds that just come during the winter or during the summer. So the, the changes there may be different and slower. But that said, there's one species called the black cap, which is a warbler. And generally, it's found in Europe and winters in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. And generally, they used to migrate from north to south. But over the last 40 years, and this could be down to climate change, the birds in, east, in the east, like in Germany and um, you know, Eastern Europe, are flying west and wintering in places like Britain. And over the past 40 years, they normally eat insects, but during the winter, they've, they've kind of substituted their diet or supplemented their diet by feeding on bird food put out by us and, and bird feeders, nuts and peanuts and stuff like that. And their bills have got thicker to deal with the feeders. And that's in the space of 40 years. So evolution doesn't necessarily happen over millions of years. It can happen very, very quickly. Wow. And on that, should, should we be feeding birds? Because sometimes you read differing opinions. Should I be putting bird food out in my garden? Um, my answer is yes. I think birds should be fed or can be fed all year round, um, especially during the winter, of course. During this spring, summer and autumn, uh, they tend to find their natural food first before coming to you. But if you're putting out food regularly, I mean, obviously lesser amounts during those periods, then birds get to know that you have a food source that when they do need it, they can come to straight away. Because garden birds have a circuit that they use. And when they are, when by late summer, there's lots of young birds out, the young birds start, you know, flocking and just doing a circuit. And they realise whilst they're doing a circuit, oh, Amy's got some food. I'll remember that next time when it gets really cold. And that's how it works. So I, I'm a firm believer. But I think you need to do it responsibly. Um, you've got to try and feed, um, clean your feeders um, once a week or two weeks. Um, I think also put out water as well. Water is just as important as food. Um, if you're feeding birds on the ground, because some birds don't go on bird tables or bird you know, feeders, holders, then put the food in a tray and bring it in every evening. Um, because if you leave it out at night, you might be attracting some unwelcome guests. So, yeah, there is some responsibility to it as well. I'll never put a nest box right next to a bird feeder either because it's like living next door to McDonald's. You wouldn't want that, would you? <laughs> That's a good analogy. And why is it that there are some birds like pigeons and, and gulls that will happily thrive off our leftovers, but you don't ever see like... I don't know, thrushes or, or tits sort of ambushing you for chips like you've seen those pictures of seagulls doing? Uh, well, obviously, they're, they're, those birds, I mean, even blackbirds and, and all those kind of birds, they still feed in some of our leftovers. They just don't do it. They do it quite discreetly when we're not there. Um, with the gulls, a lot of that behaviour is learnt behaviour. They're taught by humans to come down and get chips. So it's not every one of the species that actually does it but it's learnt behaviour. Um, but yeah, pe- birds like gulls and pigeons are essentially victims of our excess because they have learnt that they've got an easy food source, but for that they get, they get you know, 
that become villains by you know they're, they're demonized by us but it's not their fault because mm. those are the birds I, you know when I've asked others I actually mentioned that I was speaking to you today and I've asked for some questions and lots of people said you know how can I see things that aren't pigeons and, and seagulls and that obviously that's the question that it'd be great for you to answer but it is also a shame especially like you say because we've got wood pigeons which are really you know interesting really great to hear I'd love to hear the sound of a wood pigeon um, it's a shame they've been villainized in that way yeah and by the way there's no such thing as a seagull Ah, yeah. Well, actually, yeah, my well, actually, BBC Wildlife would tell me off for that, wouldn't they? Yeah, actually, there is one seagull, one true seagull that lives in the UK, but that's called a kittiwake, um, and it's a, it's a well, it's a real true seagull. Even though there is a colony in Newcastle nesting on the Tyne Bridge and other buildings nearby, it's, and that's the only inland colony or the most inland colony in the world. But during the winter, they clear off into the sea and the ocean. They go off in, and they, you don't see them until the next spring. Whereas the gulls that we have, the herring gulls, lesser backpack gulls, they're coastal. Um, but they're called seagulls because they're by the seaside. You know, the, name's, the name is stuck. Mm. Although they are in our, especially in Bristol, in the city centre, there's, there's a lot of them. Yeah. What other kinds of birds can I see in the city and, and where do I need to go specifically to, to see them? I might, should I look out for places with certain aspects, hedges, trees, what am I looking for? Okay, you can see practically anything in a city, to be honest, but um, there's a, a usual crew of birds you can see. I mean, in Bristol, which is quite a green city, you can see all the... Cl- I mean, most cities or most towns and cities up and down in the UK have a similar sort of lineup. So you're going to have blackbirds, song thrush, great tip, blue tip, dunnocks, wrens, crows, pigeons, certain species of gull, robin, you know. You're going to have a whole kind of collection wood pigeon um, that you'll see. Uh, and then green finches, gold finches. And then you can see other birds. Um, you can start off if you've got a garden. That's a great place to start. That's where I started. If you haven't got a garden, you can nip down to your local park Birds are everywhere. It's not as if you have to walk somewhere before you see them. They're everywhere. I mean, that's why I use my phrase, look up, because you look up, this time of year, you'll still be seeing swifts flying around, um, house martins, if you're lucky, um, swallows. So those birds are in the air. You can see them straight away. Um, But parks are good to start in terms of finding birds, and especially when the park has a variety of habitats. So, for example, if the park has a lake, um, you're going to see a different set of birds there. You're going to see things like, you know, mallards and mute swans and great-crested grebe and little grebe and cormorants and herons. And then if you walk away from that uh, or around the edges of the, the lake could be some reeds and then you have some reed-dwelling birds. During the summer, you, got, you might have reed warblers, sedge warblers, um, and then you may have more hens in the reeds and what have you. So you have a different selection of birds there. You walk along the grassy areas, you're going to have yet another different selection you might have starlings, you know, um, pigeons on the, uh, on the on the lawn, the grass. Um, uh, you're going to have gulls in the winter, especially. And then you might walk into a wooded area, and then you have a, a whole different suite of birds: great spotted woodpecker, several species of tit, long-tailed tit included. You know, blackbird, song thrush, carrion crow, magpie, jay. And then you walk to another area, so you get a collection of different birds that use the habitats. And what's great about having a local patch that has a selection of different habitats is that not only do you learn about a whole range of birds, a whole wide range of birds, which you may not necessarily see in your back garden, 
But you also learn about habitats unconsciously. You learn that, you know, the, the lake is good for seeing water birds, obviously. But you also learn that if too many, if there's too many stolen scooters and shopping trolleys chucked in there, it doesn't really help. So you, go, you begin to learn about conservation. And I think you also, once you start getting involved in studying in your own way, that is not officially, but just basically just studying what kind of things are around, you start falling in love. You start falling in love and you start getting to the point where you think, you know what, I will lie in front of a tractor because I, or a bulldozer because I don't want this place destroyed. This is my haven. This is where I come to ground myself, even if it's just for those reasons. And that's why it's so important to open your mind to nature. It's more than just watching birds. It's actually opening your mind and being connected. So you've got to think of it, if you have to, you've got to think about it in terms of your own well-being, your own personal well-being, your medicine. You need to have this. You need to have areas of green near to you where you can, you can connect to. And birding is just one way of bringing that to you. Do you have a, a most memorable or, or a best bird-watching experience? Where do I start? I get one every day. <laughs> I, I have these experiences every day um, because it's not about rare birds. It could be about anything, you know, uh, and it's how, how it makes you feel. Um, I can't even start. I mean, I, there's been so many. There's been hundreds, thousands of the years. So I'm just happy to be out. I'm happy to be able to see them. The day that I don't see any birds is the day that, you know, it's time to die, as far as I'm concerned. So if there's anyone listening who has loved to hear you talk, but is still maybe a little bit unsure about beginning, what kind of final words do you have to say to them? Um, don't be afraid. Um, just open your eyes and, and just try and get yourself engaged. Try and meet up with people who have similar interests and maybe you can learn from them so you can actually go out in groups and, and hang out with people. Um, I think it's important to, the most important thing is to enjoy yourself and not to, not to get yourself pressurised by anything and anyone because at the end of the day, uh, experiencing nature, I think, not only can be done as a group, but it can also be done on a very personal level. Um, and it's how you, you know, how it's how you make it, how it makes you feel, which is the most important thing. And it should make you feel great. That was David Lindo, the urban birder, talking about bird watching, biodiversity, and getting everyone out into nature. The new issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out this week, and in it we explore the groundbreaking new techniques unlocking the mysteries of the ocean, and meet the researchers going to great lengths to find out how climate change is affecting the planet. As always, there are loads more science stories inside and on sciencefocus.com, and if you like what you've just listened to, then please leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.